We're in Exodus chapter 20 today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can use. Reach in to the bulletin and pull out your sermon notes. You can follow along or fire up the app and you'll be able to follow along the entire service on your phone. And we're in week five of this series on the Ten Commandments that we're just simply calling the Ten. God's Commandments with Jesus' Insights. And today, Jesus is really going to step into the middle of the Ten Commandments, and listen to me, he's going to cause some problems. Um, If you see the title of our Bible study time today, it's why did Jesus have to say that? I mean, Jesus is going to step from the New Testament into the Old Testament, and he's going to kind of ruin everything today about the Ten Commandments, and he's going to push us, which is a good thing. Uh, One of my pastoral mentors once told me, he said, Christian, the job of a pastor is to make people spiritually uncomfortable. It's your job on Sunday morning to get up and push the people to what you know they're capable of, but they're not yet ready to do on their own. Like a personal trainer, like a great coach, like a dietitian, your job is to add weight to the side of the bar and say, I know you can do this. The spirit inside can do this. Move forward. So today, I'm going to try to push you a little bit and make you spiritually uncomfortable. Um, and if, if not for your sake, for my sake, can we pray before I try to do that today? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, thankful for the words of Jesus about the Ten Commandments today, even though it really kind of messes everything up. And God, I pray that you'll help me as a pastor to teach um, the heart of what Jesus was saying so that the heart of the people here today can connect to the heart of Jesus in a way that allows us not only to follow the Ten Commandments, but to make Jesus known in our world through the way that we live our life and the way we interact with and treat people. Uh, and God, we ask these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So here's the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. We'll read all ten, then we're going to come back today and look at commandments number six and seven. It says, and God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother so you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Commandment six, you shall not murder. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Commandment nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Commandment 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And there are the 10 commandments that you don't have to follow. If you're not a follower of God, we've said every week of this series, just as a bit of quick review that before God offered any rules to his people, he offered a relationship in Exodus 19 before God said, this is how you are supposed to live your life. God gave the Israeli people a vision for their life. And he said, I'd like to make you my treasured possession. 
I'd like to make you my special people. I'd like to make you a holy nation. I'd like for you to be different to the world and different to me. Do you want to exist in that kind of relationship? And the people of Israel said, we do. Only after they accepted an invitation to start a relationship with God did God then say, well, here's how you're supposed to live your life. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says that when we accept the invitation to connect with Jesus on a personal level, that we then become a treasured possession to Jesus. We become a special people to Jesus. We become a holy nation or a different type of person to Jesus. So if you are connected to Jesus in relationship today, these commandments are for you. If you're not, then these are commandments that you need to learn because the Christians in your life should be following these. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was asked to summarize the Old Testament in its sentence... Jesus said, here's the thing you need to know about following God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, love God and love people. The Ten Commandments teach us how to love God and how to love people. Some of the commands teach us how to love God. Some of them teach us how to love people. And Commandments 6 and 7 are the first commandments that teach us about people in general. The first four commandments are about God. No other gods, no idols, God's name in vain, the Sabbath day that's God's day. Commandment five is really about family. I mean, it's about people, not God, but it's family. But commandments six and seven and eight and nine and 10 are just about people, people in general, people we don't know, people we haven't met, maybe people we work with, maybe neighbors, maybe kids on our sports teams. They're just about people. And God says, here's what you need to know when it comes to people Here's the commands of Exodus chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. They're very short. And for many of us, they're like the first two that we feel real good about. Here they are. You shall not murder, Exodus 20, 13. Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. You know, commandments number six and seven both deal with taking life. I don't know if, if you realize that. But they both deal with death and destruction of something. And I'm honestly, after 15 years of ministry, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not sure which one is worse from just the leftover carnage perspective. I've ministered to families that have walked through a murder um, and through the death of a family member, and it's been really, really bad. And I've walked with people who've gone through the death of a marriage or the death of a family, and I've watched that. And that seems to last almost as long, if not longer, than murder. You see, murder is the taking of a physical life, but adultery is the taking of a family life. In Genesis chapter 2, God said a man and a woman will leave their families and they'll become one. They'll become, they'll become a new living being, a family. And adultery so many times gets into the middle of that living, breathing family. It results in divorce and it results in death of a family. So these actions bring death. So very naturally, we avoid them. As a matter of fact, we, we tend to relax and maybe we enjoy commandments number 6 and 7 the best. For this reason, I think for many Christians, commandments number six and seven are what I call the deep breath commandments. You say, what do you mean by deep breath commandments? I think it's the first time that as Christians we take a deep breath and think, okay, finally I've got one, right? I mean, it's like no other gods before me, and it's like, okay, Lord, I got, you know, I got to work on that one because I, you know, I really pursue this thing. And it's like, okay, no idols. And it's like, well, I don't have a lot, but I could work on that. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. I'm working on that at the golf course. You know what I mean? It's like we, we walk through these, honor the Sabbath, trying to really give God a day every week. Honor your father and mother. I get that one sometimes right. And it's like, do not murder. And we're like, Phew. you know, I got one. It's like, you know, I've never done that. That's like I'm one out of 10. And then it's like, do not commit adultery. And even though so many marriages have been wrecked by adultery, you know, still 
just morally speaking, a lot of people are like, yeah, you, sh- you shouldn't do that. So we get to commandments 6 and 7 and we almost relax and it's like, okay, you know, finally now we get to have God let up on us a little bit. These seem to be the first two we even have a shot at until Jesus speaks. And this series is not just about the Ten Commandments. It's the Ten Commandments. It's God's commandments with Jesus' insights. Because Jesus came along and said, God said this, but God meant this. God said this, but here's what God really intended. And Jesus does that with murder and adultery in a way that after you read what Jesus says, it's like, why did Jesus have to say that? Like, I was feeling good for a second. Why did Jesus have to step in and say that? Because as we continue through our outline, we read that Jesus taught us that God wants to change our attitudes, not just restrain our actions. Jesus said these commandments actually have very little to do with committing murder. These commandments actually have very little to do with committing adultery. God actually wants to get right to the heart of murder and adultery. And God wants to change the attitude of your hearts. Because if he can change the attitude of your heart, he won't have to tell you not to do the action because your actions always follow your attitudes. If we can change the attitudes, the action never happens. One of my favorite memories is my son's fourth birthday party. We've got a few pictures of it. That's Christian when he turned four. We had a little party um, out in a park, and it was a, a sports-themed party. So the kids hung out, and they played, um, played a big, you know, big game of wiffle ball, and then we played football and some other things. And we had bought these oversized like sports um, footballs, basketballs, Soccer balls. You can see the little football there in the background, just like these massive um, footballs, basketballs, baseball. I mean, any kind of soccer ball, um, tennis ball, these just massive athletic balls that were rolling around the park that the kids were just having a blast with. And we had all of our family and friends there. One of my friends 11 years ago was a guy by the name of Scott Courtney. Um, he's, the, he's now our family pastor, and that's him on my left side of that screen up there. And Scott, after the party, was kind enough to help us clean up. So Scott, you know, he, he gets, I, I drove a Suburban at the time, he, he got in my Suburban, and he backed the Suburban up to the shelter to get the coolers, the plates, the napkins, all the presents and stuff. And when he was doing that, he ran over the football, like the, the, the big one. I mean, it was like, pop, like a bomb went off, pop! Um, and immediately, like Christian turned and saw, and he just started bawling. Um, and I was like, oh no. And he, he went and he picked it up, and he was like dragging it around like a blanket, like this deflated big football just crying. And you know, Scott gets out and he's apologizing and Christian kind of comes around the side of the car crying. And I'm like, Christian, what happened? And little four-year-old Christian looks at me and he says, I'm going to kill Scott. Uh, like, that, that was, like that was his emotion. I don't know where he is in the room today. Somebody's like, I'm going to kill Scott. I'm like, you're not, you're not going to kill Scott. Um, you know, you're just upset. He's already apologized. You can't kill Scott. Everything's going to be okay. Um, and we laugh at that because we know, we know better than to say that out loud. But how many of us in our hearts this week about our boss, about our spouse, about our kids, um, about somebody we work with, about a family member or a foe in our heart? Like our mouth didn't say it because we know you're not supposed to say that. And we didn't actually act upon it uh, because the the consequences are, are horrible. But in our heart, an attitude of real anger welled up. You see, Jesus taught that murder begins with an attitude of the heart. Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, reflecting on the commandments of God and giving deeper insight to what God intended for us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. 
And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister is going to be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, Raka, which basically means you idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus said that commandment on murder was supposed to get you to check the attitude of your heart towards people. And Jesus said, if you want to know the attitude of your heart towards people, don't ask the question, have you murdered anyone? Ask the question, how do you talk about people? How do you talk about those people in your life? How, how on the inside of your heart do you feel about those people in your life who maybe they aggravate you and they irritate you a little bit? See, Jesus taught that murder begins with an attitude of the heart. A few verses later, Jesus taught that adultery begins with an attitude of the heart. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said that commandment wasn't to keep you from an action of adultery. That commandment was supposed to sink into your heart so you saw women differently. So you looked at girls differently. And it wasn't with an attitude of lust because Jesus wanted to change the attitudes of our heart, not just restrain the actions of our life. Do you know the attitude of your heart tells you a lot about your intimacy with Jesus? I mean, the way you feel about people, the way you feel about things, the way you view others tells you a lot about how much of Jesus is in your life. Because when you begin to have the heart of Jesus, everything in your heart changes towards others. So how's your heart right now? How's your attitude right now? You know, I think if there were an award given for people who knew how to cover up what was going on in their heart with a smile, it would be given to people who go to church because we're pretty good at it. And there's a lot of smiles in the room. There have been a lot of handshakes. But how's your heart? Like right now, how's your heart? How's your heart towards your spouse? How's your heart right now towards your job? How's your heart right now towards your finances? You know, as as a pastor, I get to oftentimes meet with people that you just see sitting in church, and I've only seen them sitting in church. I preach, I see couples sitting out there, and then I meet with them, and they say, Christian, if you just knew how much we fought every Sunday on the way to church, literally on the way to church, we're trying to figure out whether or not we're going to take the final step to have a divorce, and then we walk in holding each other's hands with one hand and a Bible in the other you would never know. How many do we have like that out there? You see, Jesus said, don't look at the actions. That doesn't tell you how close somebody is to Jesus. Look at their heart. Because the heart tells you where people are. Now, you and I call this being a a good Christian. Just pull it together, you know? Some Some of us may have even said that to our children today after we stopped hitting them right when we pulled in the parking lot. I was like, pull it together. Gotta go to church. Don't tell your Sunday school teacher. You know, it's like, you know, it's like we, we threaten them, you know? I'm a small group leader. Don't, don't tell them what I said. Uh, you know, it's like, pull it together. We call that being a good Christian, being, being mature. Look what Jesus calls it in Matthew 23. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and of everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and you're full of wickedness. 
you, you've pulled it together for everyone else, but God says, I know your, I know your heart. And these commandments are, are meant for your heart that will shape your attitude that then determines your actions. It's not just about murder and adultery. I mean, these went from the deep breath commandments, don't commit a murder, don't commit adultery, to, you know, thank God to like the old snap commandments. Like you hear what Jesus said, and it's like, well, I think I've broken these more than any of them, actually. I broke these this week. Broke these this morning. Broke these 15 minutes ago. Like these are the hardest ones ever. They really are. And they offer us some unbelievable, really practical challenges, but that might be hard to keep. You know, I look at these commandments and I'm challenged to stop killing people with words. And that's a challenge I think Jesus offers all of us, that as Christians, we need to stop killing people with our words. The things we say to them, the things we say about them, the things we say behind their backs, the things we allow to kind of be filtered in and out of social media. We need to quit killing people with our words. Listen to how powerful our words are and what they say about our hearts spiritually. James 1 says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. How many times do you speak out of human anger and what you're saying isn't righteous like God would desire it to be? How many times do you react out of human anger and your actions aren't the actions of what a Christian's actions should be? James says, be slower to become angry, especially in how you talk about that anger. Matthew 5, 22, seeing it again. Jesus, I tell you that anyone who's angry at a brother or sister is going to be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, rocker, idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. James goes a step further and says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not B, James says, don't you realize, does the attitude of your heart not realize that everyone you ever come across has been created in the image of God? And because of that, they deserve a certain spiritual sensitivity in anything you would say to them or about them or even associated with their situation. Do you not realize that Jesus in your life changes the attitudes of your words? Challenge number two, I look at these commandments through the lens of Jesus And I think all of us need to stop learning to kill families with our lust. We need to stop learning to kill families with our lust. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, we see the Apostle Paul really say something huge. He, He was saying there's one sin that impacts you a lot more than most. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul says just run away from sexual sin. You know who I think is most impacted by sexual sin in a destructive way towards their family? I think it's our teenagers who are sitting here today. Most of the marriage counseling I do addresses sexual sin that happened before people were married that people are trying to work their way through together as couples. So teenagers, if you would learn to flee sexual immorality, parents, if we were to learn to help our teenagers have boundaries that would keep them from sexual immorality, their family, I promise, will be a lot stronger one day in the future. But what about, what about those of us who have families? But we've got an eye and a portion of our heart kind of connected somewhere else. Look at what the Proverbs say about lust. In Proverbs 6, 25 through 29, don't lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. 
For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Proverbs says if you don't get your lust under control, you're going to get burned. I read, maybe some of you read too, the story about two weeks ago, 30 people at a Tony Robbins event in Florida were sent to the emergency room with second and third degree burns on their feet. You say, well, how'd that happen? They were walking across coals that were on fire. And if you've ever wondered if the Bible is true, the Bible says, can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? According to that article, no, that, that can't happen. When you walk across something that's on fire, your feet are going to be burned. One of the men who went for the second time in his life to a conference to walk across hot coals and ended up in the hospital with second, third degree burns was a guy by the name of Paul Gold from West Palm Beach. And here's what he said. In hindsight, jumping off would have been a fantastic idea. But when you're in the spirit of the moment, you're kind of focused on one task. Sounds like lust to me. If we were to all step back spiritually from lust, we would run. But man, when you allow yourself to lean into the moment, the Bible says lust results in adultery and adultery results in the death of a marriage and a family. If some of you are in here today and you need to cut off that inappropriate relationship with that man or that woman today because you're married and they're not your husband and your wife. Some of you are thinking about going to the office on Tuesday and you're wondering if he's going to stop by your office and pop his head in and say hello. You think about him all the time, but he's not your husband. You need to stop. Some of you men have your eye on that lady who walks around the office and you're wondering already today what she's going to wear on Tuesday. You can't do that. You've you got to stop. The things you're looking at on the computer, the things you're allowing to come onto your phone, the things you're allowing to be on your television that allow your eyes to lean into a woman who's not your wife, men, you've, you've got to stop. The inappropriate texting that you've got going on behind your family's back that, you know, is just kind of flirtatious and fun with that sales associate in another state where nothing would ever happen. It's just kind of a fun person that you've got a flirty relationship with. You can't do that. That's got to stop. That associate who wants to come in and talk to you about your husband and what a, you know, kind of what a dud he is. You can't have those conversations anymore. The time you scheduled your lunch so you can have it the same time that she is there. Or the time you run your copy so you can be there the same time that he is there. That has to stop. Because lust is killing marriages. It's killing families. And we have kids that are just kind of laid out over the span of life who have been harmed by the shrapnel of adultery that came from lust. All of us would say in hindsight, jumping off would have been a fantastic idea. But when you're in the spirit of the moment, you're kind of focused on one task. You see, lust in your heart leads to adultery in your life. And adultery in your life leads to the death of marriage and families. So we got to quit killing families with our lust. And then challenge number three, this is where I see Jesus really leaning in through the lens of his brother James, who wrote in James 1 and 3 about this very subject. I want to challenge you to get close enough to Jesus to see people the way that he does. When you look at people, do you see them through the eyes of Jesus? When you look at people, do you see them with the heart of Jesus? Do you see, like James said in James 3, every person you ever interact with created in the image of God, or do you see them differently? I've got two men in my life that I respect as much as any person that I've ever met, and every time I'm with them, I realize what a better Christian they are than me 
and I want to be more like them. One of them is a worship pastor from California by the name of Rick Muchow. Um, he's a worship pastor for 25 years at a big church out there called Saddleback. Another one is a guy by the name of Mac Lake, who was my church planning coach when we started this church. I've spent meals, I've spent days, I've spent hours, I've spent weeks with these men in their homes, with their families, they've been around mine, and never have I heard them speak negatively about anything or anyone. They are the most soft-hearted, down-to-earth people that you would ever meet. They can be talking about the greatest crisis in the world, and their heart is so sensitive and soft. It's like they see people like Jesus sees people. Every time Danielle and I have a meal with them and we leave, I think, man, why can't we be more like them? Like they, their heart is just so soft towards everything. Why can't we be more like them? And I've learned when it comes to our language, it goes back to attitude in our heart which traces back to anger in our spirit. Do you know that the level of your anger communicates something about your love of God? Do you know that through the words you say about people and the harshness with which you say them, the attitude with which you say them, it tells us something about how much real estate Jesus owns in your heart versus how much you're still hanging on to? Can I ask you an honest question today? Have we built up enough trust, those of you who are part of our church, have we built up enough trust to talk about difficult things from time to time. Have I built up enough trust with you to be able to ask you some hard questions from time to time? Because I want to do that today. When it comes to attitude, when it comes to anger, when it comes to seeing people in the image of God and being the people that help the world see that everyone is created in the image of God and that God wants to be connected to them and that God loves them and he'd like to have a relationship with them. Does the way you talk about Donald Trump to people convey to all those listening that he is created by God, he's loved by God, he's special to God, and if his life could connect to God, it would just be unbelievable. Like when people hear you talk about him, is that what they think? Do, do they think about the image of God in him and how much God loves him when you talk about, or Hillary Clinton? Does the way you talk about Hillary Clinton lead people to see the image of God in her and lead people to see the fact that God loves her. I mean, so much that he sent his son to to die for her and that there's something in her that God loves so deeply that, that he would desire to be a friend with her, to have a relationship with her. Like when you talk about her, does the attitude of your words convey how special she is to God that he would send his son for her? How about transgender people? Last six or eight weeks as we've been talking about the bathroom battles. Have your comments off the cuff about the transgender community made anyone realize that they're made in the image of God? That they were made to be in relationship with God? And that God loves them so much he sent his son to to die for things in their life? How about the NRA? The gun crowd? When you talk about the gun crowd after another mass shooting... Is that a political issue or are those people created in the image of God that God loves so much he sent his son to die for? How about immigrants, refugees, people of other races and ethnicities, people of the other gender? I mean, do our words, are our words always conveyed with an attitude that says, man, this person, because they're a human being, was created in the image of God? And I may not agree with them. I'm not talking about policy, politics. I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm just saying as a person, 
If we get beyond the veil of everything else, can we say if they're a human being, they're created in the image of God, so my heart ought to be a little softer to the person? Is that how our church talks when it comes to difficult issues? And when when we talk, do people say, man, you talk different. Like I know that's not even your political party, but you have so much respect. Help me understand why. So because they're created in the image of God, just like you are. And God desires to have a relationship with you. Like, does the way you talk about things you're opposed to lead into spiritual conversations for you? Or have we just convinced the world that Christians are the meanest, most judgmental people on the face of the planet? It's just a question. See, the commandments don't murder. Jesus said it's way deeper than that. In your heart. How many times are you looking at someone saying, I wanna, I'm going to kill Scott, right? It's like... I don't like these people at all. Why? Do you see them in the image of God? When it comes to lust, do you see every girl as God's girl? Do you know women in the Bible are referred to in two significant relationships almost all the time? Do you know that that every woman in the Bible is called a daughter of the king? A daughter of God? Hey, guys, let me ask you a question. How do you look at your friend's daughter's? Do you lust after your friends' daughters? The guys you're close to, kids you're going to hang out with and spend the 4th of July with, do you lust after your friends' daughters? Or does something about that relationship with their father say, you know, this girl is, she's special, she's different? Christian women are talked about being, as the church is, the bride of Christ. How are you going to look at your, your best friends, your brothers, your cousin's wife at the next family reunion? You see, God says, if you want to know what I think about any woman on planet earth, you look at her as my daughter, you look at her as my wife, and that will be appropriate. Anything more than that would be inappropriate. So how many times when we're looking at a girl do we see her as God's little girl running out of the house, reflecting back on her her daddy Jesus standing in the doorway saying, I'll see you soon, and thinking, I've got to protect that one. How how often do we see women walking around and we see them in our mind's eye in a wedding dress headed to the altar and Jesus is there waiting on them and we're just the best man to make sure that everything on that day goes well so that the bride can be connected with the love of her life, Jesus. Is that how we see women? Ladies, is that how you see yourself? You see, some some of us men need to change the way we see women dressed in our mind and some of you women need to see yourselves as daughters of the king and brides of the savior and literally change the way you dress because you are not a good representation of the person who gave his life for you. And then we need to help our teenage daughters lean into what modesty looks like because you represent your father. His name is God. You represent your husband and his name is Jesus. You see how everything would change if we got to the heart attitude of lust and we didn't just worry about committing adultery, I think Instagrams and Facebooks and Twitters and Snapchats would all look different if we decided that lust was not going to be a part of our life, both guys and girls. Some of those social media platforms would just altogether go away because they were created for lust and it's what drives them and keeps them going, the lust that they allow to facilitate. So do we see every girl as God's girl? Because that's what Jesus wants. Because number three, Jesus is always focused more on our hearts than our habits. Always. Always. The Bible says that 
that the eyes of God range to and fro throughout the entire earth seeking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him, not those whose habits are perfect. All of us have habits that we need to really get a tighter rein on. But how is your heart this morning? Because a heart that does not have control of lust and anger is a heart that will be destroyed. I find it so interesting that in 1 Samuel chapter 6, Israel was falling apart. So God told a prophet named Samuel, he said, I'm looking for a man who has a heart for me. God said, I'm searching for a man who has a heart. If God was putting a wanted ad in the classifieds for a roommate, God would say, wanted somebody who loves me more than anything else. People didn't say David loved God more than anything else. God said David loves God more than anyone else. So David had a heart for God. With his heart for God, he was willing to fight a giant and win. With a heart for God, he was willing to fight an entire army and win time and time and time again. But this man who I, who I can't tell in Scripture where he broke any of the first five commandments, this man who had no other gods before God, this man who had never worshipped an idol, this man that we don't see him ever taking the Lord's name in vain, this man who I'm sure kept every Sabbath and made his country keep the Sabbath, this man who honored his father and his mother did not have a grip on murder and adultery. And one night he was up in his palace because he didn't have a grip on lust and anger. The Bible says he saw someone across the way taking a bath. Her name was Bathsheba. I still really wonder if that's true. Like, can you really see someone taking a bath whose name is Bath something? It's like, Lord, like, that's just to help us remember that, right? Like, that's one of the conversations I got to have. Her name really Bath. I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of crazy. Anyway, um, there's nothing to do with what we're talking about spiritually. But he sees her taking a bath. And And he goes and asks somebody, who is that? And they, and they tell her. Now, I'm of the opinion, and I would almost die on this opinion, that that was not the first time that David saw her taking a bath, but that he'd been on that roof dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, watching her like a voyeur, overtaken by lust. And one night, he got up the courage to invite her over. He said, who is that? And they told him. And they said, oh, that's so-and-so. Her husband is in your army. He's out fighting. And instead of hearing she's married, I shouldn't be doing this. He said, he's out of town. Great, ask her to come over brought her over. He slept with her, sent her home, but he got her pregnant. You say, well, how do you deal with that? He brought her husband home and he killed him. This man who I'm not sure had ever really broken the first five commandments because of his lust and his anger broke two that destroyed a family and killed a man. 18 months later, after his son was born, a prophet came to him and said, David, do you realize what you've done? And he said, because of this sin, because you could not control your anger, because you could not control your lust, your kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, is going to be torn in two. It's going to be divided forever. Your kingdom is going to fall apart because you could not control your anger and your lust. David, after he found this out and after his son ended up dying, he wrote a psalm that we have is Psalm 51. And in this psalm, he basically cried out to God and said, what could I do to make this right? And he offered a bunch of things that didn't work. He's like, you know, giving an offering wouldn't work and going to church wouldn't work and teaching Sunday school wouldn't work and making a sacrifice wouldn't work. And he basically, basically got to the end and said, God, here's what I've realized. He said, my sacrifice, which the word sacrifice, we could, we could give offering. My offering, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David said, the only thing that will allow me to be close to God again, there's nothing I could do spiritually except realize that I was wrong and say I'm sorry. So God, here I come with a broken heart. I'm so sorry. I realize my kingdom is forever divided, but will you put my life back together? 
Do you know broken hearts are good spiritually because broken hearts lead to rebuilt lives? It's actually not until your heart is broken that Jesus can step in and begin to rebuild anything. And my hope today is that we've gotten so far past murder and adultery and dug so deep into attitudes and anger and lust that that maybe I've hurt your heart a little bit. My hope today is that the Spirit of God through the Word of God has maybe hurt your heart a little bit because that's healthy. Because broken lives lead to real life once you allow God to rebuild it. And that's what happened in David. His kingdom was forever torn apart, but his life got put back together. And some of you are here and your kingdom has been torn apart by lust and anger. You've had a great relationship in your past that was a part of the kingdom of your life that's been torn apart because of anger, because of attitude, because of words, because of harshness. You've had a a great relationship, maybe a family relationship that's been torn apart by not your lust, but the lust of someone else who couldn't keep their eyes in their head and a husband or a wife, their lust led to the death of your marriage. And your kingdom has been forever torn, but your heart can be healed because God doesn't break anything down except to rebuild it better. And you know what Jesus is teaching us to do through these commandments? He's teaching us to practice small so that we can perfect big. You say, what does that mean? Jesus says, in the little things that cause you to be angry, get a hold of those. In the little areas where you lust, get a hold of those. Because if you can learn to control the anger, if you can learn to control the lust, if you can practice small, you'll perfect big. If you can learn to control the anger, you're never going to commit murder. If you can learn to control the attitude, you're never going to commit murder. If you can learn to control the lust, you're never going to commit adultery. So listen, tomorrow, when that person cuts you off in traffic, and the old you would let that anger well up, and want to run them off the road or want to rear-end them or want to lay on the horn or want to show them you're number one, when any of those things begin to happen, I want you to stop and take a deal. I want you to practice small. Practice. Practice letting your anger go and just say, you know what, God bless them. That crazy driver, he must have somewhere to go that's more important than where I have to go. And if it's not, Lord, I trust you to take his life down the road about a mile or two or... Let him get a ticket, you know? Don't you love when you see people going fast that get tickets away down the road? It's like vindication for all of you that they passed. Learn to practice small. When your husband or wife comes in and they do something that insults you or offends you and you're ready to raise up and give it to them, just stop and take a deep breath. Say, Lord, you know, Lord, help me just in this moment, just this one time. Help me to learn to press anger down. Help me to learn to see whatever's going on as a situation you've created to help me know you more. Just... I'm going to let this one go. Practice small. When your boss comes in first thing Tuesday morning after you've had the greatest family 4th of July you've ever had and he's waiting for you with some project you weren't expecting that's going to eat up your Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you want to go nuts, just take a deep breath and practice small. Not going to be overtaken by anger. The attitude of my heart is going to be changed. Maybe this came down from somewhere I'm not aware of and maybe they're under tremendous pressure and maybe me helping him or her with a good attitude will help them see Jesus in me. Practice small. As for lust, practice small. Go home and delete a contact. Don't send your friend a happy 4th of July text tomorrow. Show up at work at a different time or take a different route. Instead of walking by his office, go the back way. Instead of going into the lounge when you see her walk into the lounge, 
keep your butt at your desk. Practice small. Try to go a week without recognizing what she's wearing or having a conversation with him about what he did that week. Practice small. One moment, one day at a time. Don't return the next text. Stop following them on social media so you can be aware of where they are and what they're doing. Quit liking their post and posting on their post. Practice small. Because if you can get the lust under control, you're never going to commit adultery. That's what Jesus was saying. If you can get the anger under control, you're never going to commit murder. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus said, in the process, you're going to show everyone how I would do it. You're going to show everyone how I would feel about people. You're going to show everyone how I would talk about people. You're going to show everyone how I would respond to difficult situations. You're going to show everyone how I respect young ladies and young men in my life. Practice small, perfect big, show people who Jesus really is. See, if you would give Jesus a little real estate in your life where anger resides, people are going to see Jesus more in your life. If you will give Jesus a little more real estate in your life where lust resides, your family's going to make it. Your kids and grandkids way down the road are going to say, thank you. Thank you for getting a hold of that issue. Thank you for sticking with mom. Thank you for sticking with dad. Thank you for sticking with us. Thanks for practicing small every day and being unwilling to return a glance or a smile or tell a joke. Thanks for being willing to sit in your office when everyone else went out and had drinks after work. Thanks for being willing to go home, come home to us. Thank you. Practice small, perfect big, lean into Jesus, and really begin to get a hold of these areas in your life. Because if you do, you not only won't ever murder or commit adultery, you'll show people a Jesus the world has never seen, but the one they're dying to be exposed to.